Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Candace Garwood, and I'm a clinical professor at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and adjunct associate professor at the School of Medicine at Wayne State University. I also serve as one of the scientific editors for Pharmacotherapy. Today, we're talking with Dr. Bianca Apriliano about her paper titled Risk of Bleeding with Factor 10A Inhibitors Versus Unfractionated Heparin in Patients with Acute Kidney Injury. Bianca is a clinical pharmacist at Ascension St. John Hospital in Detroit, Michigan. She's joined by doctors Stephanie Edwin and Chris Giuliano. Stephanie is a clinical pharmacy specialist in the cardiac ICU at Ascension St. John, and Chris is a clinical professor at the Eugene Applebaum College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences and an internal medicine clinical pharmacy specialist at Ascension St. John Hospital. So welcome to the podcast. In your study recently published in Pharmacotherapy, you aimed to compare bleeding and thromboembolic event occurring in patients who were receiving the direct oral anticoagulants, either apixaban or rivaroxaban. And you compared this with patients who were taking a DOAC but switched to unfractionated heparin when experiencing acute renal injury. Dr. Priliano, could you describe some of the background and what led you to develop this research question? Of course. First of all, I wanted to thank you for inviting us to join the podcast today. It is a real pleasure. Acute kidney injury is common in our hospitalized patients. Previous studies have estimated that AKI occurs in one of every five hospitalizations and has been associated with increased mortality. The landscape of anticoagulation has certainly changed. Factor 10A inhibitors are the group of anticoagulants we most frequently encounter. Some things to note about the use of these drugs in renal dysfunction are that patients with renal dysfunction were excluded from landmark trials, which have historically guided our clinical practice. Patients with CKD and end-stage renal disease have previously been noted to experience increased bleeding while on anticoagulation. We have no data describing use of these medications in AKI, but we know that AKI can produce some pretty dynamic changes in pharmacokinetics when compared with chronic renal dysfunction. Great. Can you briefly describe the design of your study? Of course. We conducted a retrospective cohort study of AKI patients admitted to Ascension St. John Hospital receiving therapeutic anticoagulation for at least 24 hours. Renal failure was staged using the ACAN criteria. Our treatment group was composed of patients who continued therapeutic doses of apixaban or rivaroxaban while in AKI. We compared these patients to a group of unfractionated heparin patients, and these patients were either transitioned from a factor 10A inhibitor to unfractionated heparin during AKI, or were initiated on unfractionated heparin during their hospitalization and then transitioned to factor 10A inhibitors upon the resolution of their AKI. So in your study, what were the primary outcome measures that you were looking at, and what were the secondary outcome measures? Our primary outcome was to compare in-hospital composite bleeding between patients who continued factor 10A inhibitors versus unfractionated heparin while in AKI. Composite bleeding consisted of major bleeding and clinically relevant non-major bleeding events. And then our secondary outcomes included the evaluation of the individual components of these primary outcomes, as well as thromboembolic events. In this study, how did you define major and clinically relevant non-major bleeding? 
And what about thrombosis? How did you define that? So major bleeding events were defined using the ISTH or the International Society on Thrombosis and Hemostasis criteria. And this includes fatal bleeding, any symptomatic bleeding in a critical area such as intracranial hemorrhage, or bleeding leading to a drop in hemoglobin of at least two grams per deciliter, leading to the transfusion of at least two units of packed red blood cells. Clinically relevant non-major bleeding events were defined as an acute, clinically overt episode that did not meet the definition of major bleeding, but was associated with either medical intervention, an unscheduled contact with a physician, interruption or discontinuation of anticoagulation, or impairment of daily life activities. Thromboembolic events were included, included acute coronary syndrome, stroke, a TIA, systemic embolism, or a VTE. And all bleeding and thromboembolic events were only counted if they occurred after the initiation of therapeutic anticoagulation. Dr. Giuliano, can you tell us how you calculated the power that you needed for this study? Yeah, as Bianca nicely highlighted, unfortunately, there's no pre-existing studies. So we had to look into the literature, I would say scour the literature to find a study that we could use for, to calculate the sample size. And so we chose a study that had a very similar bleeding uh, definition, and we powered the study to allow us to find a 11% difference in composite bleeding between the groups. Can you tell us about the major components or the statistical analysis of the study? So the fun part, we wanted to make sure we controlled for confounding factors in a few different ways. Our primary way of controlling for confounding factors was using a logistic regression model. In this model, we included factors that were both theoretically associated with our primary outcome. And then that also met our threshold for statistical significance, which was a p-value of less than 0.1 with its association with the outcome. What ended up in the model at the end of the day was procedural bleed risk, hemoglobin, antiplatelet use, cancer, gender, and amiodarone. And we also planned out to do a propensity-matched analysis to make sure that the different ways of controlling for confounding factors didn't lead to a change in our observed results. So what was the study sample size and the baseline characteristics of the patient population that you guys evaluated? We ended up including a total of 500 patients that was split evenly between groups. The typical patient was an average age of 70, and unsurprisingly, in an AKI study, the most common comorbidity was CKD. The stage 1 AKI of note was the most common type of AKI, and the most common DOAC that patients were continued on was apixaban. Probably also unsurprising. Okay, can you describe the findings? What were the results of the primary outcome measures? So in the Unadjusted analysis, we saw a 46% reduction in the odds of composite bleeding in patients that were continued on their DOAC compared to using going, going to heparin instead. When controlling for confounders using that regression that I was talking about before, the reduction in odds didn't change much. So before with unadjusted, it was 46% reduction. 
when we controlled for confounders, uh, that was changed to a 43% reduction in the odds. And the propensity analysis also showed similar results. What were the secondary outcome measures that you found? So because our primary was a composite, we looked at each individual component of the composite as a secondary outcome. And what we found with the secondary outcomes is that clinically relevant non-major bleeding was really driving that composite outcome. None of the other secondary outcomes showed a difference, but it's important to note that the events of major bleeding and thrombotic events were on the lower side, and our study wouldn't have been powered to detect those changes alone. Dr. Edwin, can you tell us, were any of your uh, findings surprising? Well, I guess that's a good question. Yeah, I would say because the majority of our patients were receiving apixaban, which we know has the lowest fraction of renal excretion, I think that the results supporting continuation of factor 10A inhibitors was a bit expected. What I will say is that we did have a pleasant surprise. When we looked at our rate of major bleeding events, which was 2.4% in the unfractionated heparin group and 2% in the group that was continued on their factor 10A inhibitors, we actually found that it was significantly lower than what was reported in previous literature that was evaluating factor 10A inhibitors and AKI. And I like to bring this point up because I think it really speaks to the importance of anticoagulation stewardship. That's such a hot topic right now. Factor 10A inhibitors are often billed as the set it and forget it type drugs, but in reality, they do require close monitoring to ensure safety, especially when we have all of these changes occurring during hospitalization. Patients in our study were evaluated daily by our pharmacist-managed anticoagulation service. Uh, Our pharmacists evaluate for changes in renal function, bleeding, interacting medications, and any scheduled procedures. And I have a feeling that our close monitoring may have contributed to the reduced rate of major bleeding that was seen in our study. Can you say that your findings are generalizable to most patients with AKI taking either apixaban or rivaroxaban, or are there limitations in applying these results to one drug or the other? So because our study was comprised primarily of apixaban patients, the results really should be applied with caution to rivaroxaban patients, considering that there's a higher dependence on renal clearance with that drug. Um, Also, our study population had a relatively low incidence of Aiken stage 3 renal failure. So clinically, these are the patients that have a serum creatinine that is at least three times their baseline, an increase in their serum creatinine greater than 4, with an acute increase of 0.5 or the need for renal replacement therapy. This group of patients might also be a group where our results should be applied with caution. Are there any additional limitations to your study? And if so, is there anything that you would have done differently? I would say that it should be noted right now that there are not any clear guidance that we can use um, using anti-10A monitoring to guide the transition to parenteral anticoagulation. I know that's occurring at some hospital sites. However, it's not yet FDA approved and therapeutic reference levels have not been established. So our study did not monitor patients with uh, anti-factor 10A monitoring. Our practice was to transition these patients per the guidance in the package insert. And what we did is we started our unfractionated heparin at the time the next factor 10A inhibitor dose was due with no initial bolus. Um, transitioning to unfractionated heparin might be placing patients at risk of anticoagulant overlap due to the potential for accumulation of factor 10A inhibitors. 
This can actually result in over-anticoagulation once parenteral anticoagulation is initiated. Can you share with our listeners what you think to be the take-home message of your study? Well, anyone who works in the hospital knows that receipt of anticoagulation in the setting of AKI is so common. And as factor 10A inhibitor use continues to increase, it's really important for us to understand how these drugs are impacted in AKI. While our studies show that patients continued on factor 10A inhibitors had lower rates of clinically relevant non-major bleeding, I think the most important take-home point is that the rates of bleeding were not increased. Um, this really does suggest that a transition to unfractionated heparin is likely unnecessary, especially in patients who are receiving apixaban or are in the earlier stages of AKI. Thank you so much for giving us more information about your study. The full article is published in the February 2023 issue of Pharmacotherapy. Dr. Zapriliano, Giuliano, and Edwin, I really want to thank you again for sharing your research and your additional insights with us during this podcast.